Back to 1 Corinthians 7, we return this morning after a hiatus of a couple of weeks, which I hope has been refreshing to you. I mentioned uh, last time that there was more to be said from 1 Corinthians 7 about singlehood that we could not cover in a single study. So um, I want to return this morning for that purpose to the same passage, so we'll be reading a different set of verses from the same chapter than the ones we focused on last time. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, would you join me in prayer? Father in heaven, we come pleading with you, knowing that a father does not, a good father does not withhold any good thing from his children. He will not give us a serpent when we ask for fish or a stone when we ask for bread. So for bread we ask, for the bread of life, for you to feed us with your word. We pray with confidence in our Father, in Jesus' name, amen. 1 Corinthians 7, we're going to be reading the first nine verses and then dropping down to verse 25. Now concerning the matters about what you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. Now down to verse 25. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned, and if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. 
anyone thinks that he's not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined that in this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed as well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. If there's anything I've been reminded, or of which I've been reminded in my study on this topic of singlehood, it is that there are many, many reasons why one might find himself or herself single. I've been reminded by Jesus in Luke 19 that uh, some find themselves single for reasons utterly beyond their choosing or control, while others deliberately choose this for themselves. And some Christians embrace their singlehood with aplomb, while others struggle with it, even chafe against it, deeply desiring to be married, disappointed that they are not or not yet. And some of those are dismayed that God has not chosen to give them a spouse. Some have a very self-conscious sense of calling to singlehood, while others come very slowly over years to the conviction that this is God's calling for them. The name of John Stott may be familiar to you, if for no other reason than you've heard his name several times from this pulpit. Stott, a marvelous Christian scholar whose influence continues from the late 20th century, the second half of the 20th century, into this one, even though he is in glory. I say, I read, he had always assumed, uh, Stott had assumed that he would marry. He entered the ministry of the Anglican Church as a young man, expecting that he would find a wife at some point, but he never did. He lived his immensely fruitful life as a bachelor, and the longer he remained single, the more sure he became that it was his calling to remain single. But it was a gradual thing. A powerful influence in his younger life, indeed the man who led him to Christ as a teenager, had been a bachelor who had committed himself to singleness precisely for the sake of the gospel ministry. So the seeds were planted there early in Stott. Here's an excerpt from an article about John Stott in the Anglican paper Church Times in 1995. The most widespread John Stott rumor was that he had sworn off women at an early age in order to devote himself to the ministry. I've never taken a vow of celibacy, he says. In fact, when I was in my 20s and 30s, I was expecting to marry. There were two women who attracted me, although not simultaneously. It's difficult to explain what happened. All I can really say is that when I had made up my mind whether to go forward in commitment, I lacked assurance that this was God's will for me. So I drew back. 
Having done it twice, I realized it was probably God calling me to be single. Looking over back over my life, I think I know why God has called me to be single, because I could never have traveled or written as I have done if I had responsibility of family. It has been lonely in some ways, but I'm grateful for a very large circle of friends. May the singles uh, among us, those Christians who are single, say the same thing, finding themselves in a large circle of very good and close friends here. But there is also this realism. To an American audience, Stott confided this, I do regret not having had my own family and that I have always loved children and loved home life. I also believe very strongly that marriage is God's will for the generality of human beings and that marriage, sex, and family are all good gifts from the good creator. And I rejoice in them when I see them in other people. So naturally, from time to time, I am envious, and sometimes it is lonely. But it has its advantages in terms of freedom and output, which I also greatly value. As my ministry developed in the way that it has, with a great deal of traveling all over the world and the writing and with very little free time, I suppose I said to myself that God had called me to be single in order to devote myself to the kind of ministry to which he has called me. By the way, there's another side to uh, all of this. Stott's biographer goes on to say that uh, women tended to find Stott uh, irresistible and uh, that numerous problems were actually caused by this great attraction uh, to him. Uh, George Cansdale is quoted as saying that he had more problems as the church warden of all souls from the rector's single state than from any other source. In other words, Stott broke a lot of hearts. It's, uh, it's been of keen interest to me personally over these past several weeks also to read uh, about hymn writers who uh, remained single and the providences involved in that. I've uh, chosen hymns written exclusively by Christians who were single again this week for our worship. Last time was Bernard of Clairvaux and Francis of Assisi, you remember, who had taken vows of celibacy, making themselves eunuchs, as Jesus said. But Robert Murray McShane, you might remember, had actually proposed to two women and was turned down both times. The Lord's will was not for him to marry. He desired to be married, but the Lord did not. Margaret Clarkson never received a proposal that I know of and went on to write a book on singlehood. Today, we started with Isaac Watts, whose loving overtures were reciprocated fully and ardently, even talks of marriage in writing by his intended, but who was rejected by Elizabeth Singer upon their first face-to-face -face encounter because of his looks. She lamented upon rejecting his marriage proposal if only I could say that I admired the casket as much as I admire the jewel that it contains. 
What makes the singing of the hymn, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go, a hymn that Elizabeth Elliot once called the balm of heaven, so poignant is precisely that there was a love that did let George Matheson go. When George Matheson lost his eyesight, his fiancée, finding the prospect of a blind husband simply too much, broke off the engagement and gave him back his ring. Had I the time to tell you the slightly longer story, you I think would find it interesting. You'll have to search it out for yourselves or, or contact me afterwards for a copy of it. William Cooper, with whose hymn God Moves in a Mysterious Way, will conclude our worship this morning, was kept from sealing his attachment to the girl of his desire uh, by her father, who would not allow it. And Steele, a lay pastor's daughter whose life was early marked by tragedy and affliction, was engaged to be married at the age of 21, but her fiancé drowned the day of their wedding. We'll sing her hymn during the communion. Francis Havergal turned down several offers of marriage in order instead to give herself completely and utterly in devotion unmitigated to Christ. No surprise that she should write words like, Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Now, I know I should stop there, but I, I simply can't resist passing this along to you that fell into my hands providentially, the reason why the Reverend John Barrage, the author of an entire book of hymns, none of which we'll sing today or ever, uh, explains in a letter to the Countess of Huntington how he came to the conclusion that he was called to remain unmarried in this letter. To Lady Huntington... March 23, 1770. Eight or nine years ago, having been grievously tormented with housekeepers, I truly had thought of looking out for a Jezebel myself. But it seemed highly needful to ask advice of the Lord. So, falling down on my knees before a table with a Bible between my hands, I besought the Lord to give me a direction. Then, letting the Bible fall open uh, of itself, I fixed my eyes immediately on these words. When my son was entered into his wedding chamber, he fell down and died. This frightened me heartily. You may easily think, but Satan, who stood peeping at my elbow, not liking the heavenly caution, presently suggested a scruple that the book was apocryphal. It was Second Esdras 10 verse 1, and the words, therefore not to be heeded. Well, after a short pause, I fell on my knees again and prayed the Lord not to be angry with me, whilst, like Gideon, I requested a second sign. And from the canonical scripture uh, this time. Then letting my Bible fall open before me, I fixed my eyes directly on this passage. Thou shalt not take thee a wife, neither shalt thou have sons or daughters in this place. Now I was completely satisfied and was thus made acquainted with my Lord's will. Sometime later, a lady came to see Berridge 
in her carriage to solicit his hand in marriage, assuring him that the Lord had revealed it to her that he was, uh, rather she was, to become his wife. Madam, he said in reply, if the Lord has revealed it to you that you are to be my wife, surely he would also have revealed to me that I was designed to be your husband. But as no such revelation has been made to me, I cannot comply with your wishes. Well, Reverend Barrage may have been, as J.C. Ryle described him a mighty instrument for good as one of the English evangelists of the 18th century, but I suspect that his Gideon-esque decision in favor of bachelorhood likely spared at least one fine English woman from a sadder state than spinsterhood. Uh, there are some also who, um, who married to who never should have. I've uh, praised David Livingston to you from this pulpit from time to time, the great missionary and African explorer, but I think it right, especially upon reflection that uh, some of your eyebrows have risen uh, to hear how he left his wife and his children behind for extended periods of time to pursue his passion, even if it were the gospel. Recent research reveals that while much about him remains admirable, certainly, he was a, well, how to put it delicately, a lousy husband and a lousy father. He apparently had been given the, the gift that Paul talks about here in 1 Corinthians 7, that of sexual uh, continence but attached to himself a wife nonetheless, whose short life was also a sad and tragic one. Not all are called to marriage, and not all are fit for marriage. May I urge you who are single to be very careful and deliberate about the one to whom you join yourself for life. Flipping through radio stations a couple of weeks ago, I heard these lines, and all of this was on my mind when I heard them in a pop song. If you like the way you look that much, oh, baby, you should go and love yourself. I'm afraid that uh, I know some young people who love themselves that way, way too much at the moment to love another in the way that marriage requires. Ladies, may I recommend that you check his Facebook and uh, click through his photos. And uh, if you start to feel like a fish looking up through the reflective surface of Narcissus's pool, uh, then you are looking at a man who is so filled with himself and his heart so consumed with himself, there's simply no room left in it for you. Same for you gentlemen. If her Facebook page reads like a manifesto of self, the enlistment of all the world to affirm her own high opinion of her own opinions, especially regarding her own beauty, with a gallery of carefully cropped selfies from every angle and distance to prove it, Heed this advice, steer 
clear. Her greatest admiration and her highest respect belongs to one and to one only, herself. Don't go trying to spoil that for her. Marriage, as we shall see, Lord willing, is about serving. It's about a relationship into which men and women must enter not to be served, but to serve. Given the choice of marrying such a self-absorbed person or remaining single, you will not regret opting for the latter. At any rate, Paul says that it is better to remain single anyway, if possible. He says it's good to remain single in verses 8 and 26. That he who refrains from marriage does even better than he who does marry, verse 38. And in verse 40, that while a widow is certainly free to marry again, of course, only in the Lord, in his judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. Why would he say such things, such shocking things for us to hear who put so much stock, and not wrongly so, into marrying and raising children? Well, he tells us. When it comes to serving Christ, being single has many advantages. In verse 28, he points out single people are spared the suffering that often accompanies marriage. What kind of suffering is that? Well, the suffering that comes from living so close to a fellow sinner, even if he is a saint. Marriage brings joy. Yes, of course, it certainly does, to be sure. Wonderful bliss. But because of the fall, marriage is also marred by struggles. Isn't that exactly what Genesis 3 tells us to expect? Sinners have a way of stepping on each other's toes, don't they? Especially at such close quarters, and sometimes even go to kicking shins to say nothing of the pains that come from the loss of loved ones and of spouses and of children. From these Christians who are single are, are spared. Struggles and then also distractions, or as Paul calls them, describes them in verse 32, anxieties. Christians who are married have a spouse to please, a wife to provide for, a husband with needs to meet, but the unmarried person has no such anxieties. Isn't that exactly what Stott was describing? And, and Francis Havergal, who who just knew that a husband would distract her from the sort of devotion she wanted to give only and fully to Christ. Well, I would not be so arrogant as to pretend that I can tell you with certainty what Paul means when even the scholars don't know or agree or scratching their heads over what he calls in verses 26 and 30, 29, this present distress and the appointed time. I can tell you with some confidence that he compares the present form of the world to the future. And what do we know about the future world and its form? Well, we don't know a whole lot, do we? But from the glimpses we are given in Scripture, we do know this, there will be no marriage in heaven. We'll all be singles, <clears throat> apparently, just like the incarnate Jesus was single, just like the angels who neither marry nor are given in marriage. The glorious future, the greatest part of our lives, my brothers and sisters, does not include 
marriage. And on that rock must shatter every notion that singlehood is somehow an inferior state when nothing will be inferior in heaven. I know that for many married folk, that thought is a painful one because you just can't imagine a happier life unmarried to your spouse, while for others, some less fortunately matched for now, that fact is a small part of what will make heaven so heavenly. At any rate... What will make heaven heaven is, of course, that we will be so completely consumed by love for our groom, Christ, that we will not miss being married, even we who love being married so much in this life. You who are single have this advantage already, that free from the temporal and temporary anxieties of marriage, your heart is freer to feel the weight of glory, of the eternal things, even now. You're, you're free to love Christ even more. Though I hasten to add, those of you who are married are not free from obligation to love the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, even more than your wife or your husband, which is Paul's point about married people living as though they were not in verse 29. It's not a command to neglect your spouse, but rather uh, not to neglect Christ in this life, as you certainly will not in the next. For those reasons, from Paul's perspective, the single life is the happier one and the potentially holier one. Now, he's not dissing marriage. <laughs> he's not discouraging marriage. In fact, if you haven't the gift of sexual continence, of self-control, and you have the opportunity to marry in the Lord, that is to say there's a faithful Christian who is in, agreeable to entering into marriage with you, by all means, feel free. Get married. Better that than burning with passion. Isn't the Bible wonderfully practical? Paul is, is saying that marrying in the Lord, he says it right here, you do well to marry. You do well to marry. But, but don't be so quick to write off singlehood. Don't be so quick to, to, to write off singlehood. Don't be pressured. Don't be pressured into marriage, no matter how badly your mother wants to be a grandma. Don't be pressed into marriage just because everyone else is getting married or seems that way. Or because there's some expectation expressed or unexpressed by the culture or even by the church for you to get married. Not when the Bible says so much about the positives of remaining single and therefore the better place to serve the Lord with all of your undistracted heart. Which assumes, of course, that you, you use your singlehood to do just that. Singlehood is not given to anyone by God merely for their own sake, but for His glory and for their ultimate good. Just as marriage is not given to anyone by God merely for their own sake, but for His glory and for their ultimate good. So I thought about all of, all of this. I went back 
last week to an article that a seminary classmate of mine named Paige Benton, now Paige Benton Brown, wrote on this topic of singlehood, which I recommend to all of you. She was one of the only women in our class, the only one in most of them, uh, the daughter of a local pastor in St. Louis. And as you can imagine, people were always trying to help her, <laughs> help her find her mate and uh, asking her why she was still single, sometimes uh, pitying and a little bit too condescending and all the rest, all trying to be very helpful, of course, but coming off annoying. And uh, from the perspective of a Christian who was also single, she argued brilliantly, asking rhetorically this. Could God possibly be any less good to me on the average Tuesday morning than he was on that monumental Friday afternoon when he hung on the cross in my place? The answer is a resounding no. God will not be good, less good to me tomorrow either because God cannot be less good to me. I long to be married, Paige acknowledged. My younger sister got married two months ago. She now has an adoring husband, a beautiful home, a whirlpool bathtub, and all new corning wear. Is God being any less good to me than to her? No. God will not be less good to me because God cannot be less good to me. It is a cosmic impossibility for God to shortchange any of his children. At the time that Paige wrote that, she, she was working on a campus ministry at Vanderbilt, and the girls under her care were reading a book called Lady in Waiting, a popular book for Christian women struggling with singleness. That's all fine and dandy, Paige wrote. But what about this subtitle? And meanwhile, lady, get working. And that's exactly what Paige did. Even as she longed to be married, not knowing God's plan, what it was, but fully content that it was perfect and perfectly for her good, for it could not possibly be otherwise, whether she would be married two years from then or die unmarried at the age of 93, she worked hard, worked as hard as possible for the kingdom of God right where she was and in the state in which God had her at the time. God, she, she filled her days with kingdom work that kept her moving. And any man who would overtake and capture Paige was going to have to do so with his running shoes on. Cleverly, she made this fragment from the gospel her theme verse, if any man would come after me, let him 
<laughs> you know, the rest of the text, you know, let him deny himself, take him. But she took that fragment and made it, oh, if any man would come after me, let him. Singlehood is a gift. And it is to be opened and exercised with might and main. Not squandered in selfish pursuits or soaking in self-pity. What time and opportunity singles have that married people simply do not because they are distracted, because they're busy with married and family matters, is not meant to be filled with video games, television shows, internet surfing, and other trivialities, but rather kingdom work. Redeem the time, Paul says, for the days are evil. It's a commandment, and it's a commandment not only for Christians who are single, but for all Christians, both married and single. And the saddest thing that a single person can do is to squander his singlehood on himself or herself. Don't waste your life. Invest it. All of you. You Christians who are single. You Christians who are married. All of you. All of us. Both. Glorify God by filling the station in which he has placed you with kingdom priorities and kingdom work. Amen.